Hola, pod peeps across the digital domain. It's the Deacon's Pod, where spirituality and justice meet real American life in the 21st century. I'm Deacon Dennis. Say hello to my co-conspirators, Paulist affiliate Deacons, Deacon Tom and Deacon Drew. Well, it's good to see you uh, two again, even if it's virtually. We want to welcome back all of our new listeners that we may have picked up from our podcast where we spoke to Dawn Eden Goldstein about her book, Father Ed. Welcome aboard. Thanks for listening. And any of our other new listeners who are out there, we are picking up listeners we learn from around the world. Yeah. I want to say to our listeners in Iceland, far set knit tear. I, I really hope our, I really hope you got that right. I hope yeah, so too. Really. It's a, I'm, I'm rolling the dice. It means a happy new year. I'll watch the email. We'll see what yeah, we'll see. Write us from Iceland. Send us an email. Tell us if we got that. So we want to say hello to you and thank you. We hope you share this with your friends, especially those of your friends who may be looking for an entryway back into the church or into a spirituality that allowed them to come to our beautiful Catholic church. And for those who are writing nice reviews on Apple Podcasts, I thank you very much. Wow, yeah, I know. Yeah, and some we've yeah. got some emails from people, too. It's yeah. always good to hear from the listeners. We we encourage that at the end of every every pod. We give you the the contact information. Feel free to, to tell us whatever you liked, you didn't like, or what you'd like to see, what your questions are. I mean, we're just... Who your favorite deacon is on here, you know? <laughs> well, you know, the... <laughs> no, we don't really want that. We're not really. Oh, good. Because we are humble. Deacons. Upward mobile. Like the dust. Humble like the dust. So I wanted to share something with you, too, that I found exciting in, in my life lately. I may or may not have mentioned on the air that we have a new pastor in, in our church, and he's bringing, uh, you know, some fresh new ideas. And one of the things that he's brought to us, he happens to be a vocationist father. And one of the things that the vocationist fathers do with each other and with the people that they meet is when they come to say hello to you or stand up to preach or, or just whenever they meet somebody, they say, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. And the response to that is to say, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph back. And he explained to us what that is all about, is that they try to see Jesus, Mary, and Joseph in each one of us which I think is actually beautiful. It creates a holy and a mystical and a spiritual bond right away with the person that you're talking to. And it's so easy to fall into the habit of doing it. For instance, now when I preach from time to time, I take my lead from him. I stand up and I say to the congregation, to the people in the pews, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. And they all, and right now we're all in a honeymoon period, I guess, because they all start smiling and they all, Jesus, and it just comes out of the, you know, right out of the pews, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph back. And we're off to a good start. So I just wanted to share that because it's hard in our secular world to get in yeah. habit of when you meet somebody on the street or in your place of work to say, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. They might misunderstand where that's well, coming. Well, in Europe, I believe when they answered the phone when it was first invented, they would say, praise be Jesus Christ. They didn't oh. say hello. They had a religious greeting. I think that was very common. And other orders do that too, like the Trappists. Used to do that. I don't know if they still do, but they used to. They used to do it. They used to do it in Latin when you met someone. Mm -hmm. You would say, you know, from Psalm seventy, our help is in the name of the Lord, and the response would be, "Who made heaven and earth?" Or that kind of thing. Right. You know, Benedicite, Dominus, bless me, Father, bless you. You know. So there were religious greetings. But well, I'm wondering how many how many Irish people do you have? Like Irish descent people, do you have in your parish, Drew? I don't know. Probably thirty percent, maybe more. I mean, that's I'm, why you're getting the response because. It, Mr. Casey and I will tell you that we grew up, you're a convert, so you, you didn't have this, but Tom, am I wrong? We grew up hearing Jesus, Mary, and Joseph all the time around the house, but it wasn't a mystical greeting, was it? No, not necessarily. <laughs> yeah, I'm very familiar with that greeting as well, and I've heard that yeah. around the house as well. It was cause for confession. <laughs> I, I, I will tell you that you know you can hear that even in a Protestant house from time to time, okay? okay. But we did it at the, uh, the, the grammar school. Mary. Grammar school, we used to put the JMJ at the top of every paper. Every well, day. we did, yes. That's true. That's true. But we it, wrote it, JMJ it, on the top of your paper, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, before you wrote anything. But it's just a, a nice way to begin a conversation, and I wanted to share it. So, Well, beautiful. Yeah. 
So today we're talking to uh, Claire Henning, who is a parishioner. That's the least thing you can say about her is that she's mm. a parishioner at St. Paul the Apostle in Los Angeles, one of our one of our Paulist churches. But the, more than that, she's a Catholic leader in, in a nationwide sense. She's been involved in so many initiatives. These days, she's spending a lot of time with the Senate process in her own parish. She's a friend of the Paulists. She's somebody that we all know and have come to rely on for all kind of ministerial advice and services. She's just a wonderful lady. And I think our listeners will get a lot of insight into our Catholic faith and into what makes a really good Catholic person just by yeah. listening to her. Yeah. She's a real, real good human too. You know, I mean, she's really, you see that the best of Catholicism coming out of people like her and she's dedicated her life at great expense. I mean, she's got all kinds of advanced degrees, have gone to all kinds of graduate schools and, you know, she's really, you know, all the, the progress the church has made, you know, since the, the council is due to people like her. And she is a, just a wonderful, wonderful example of, of all the faithful women, especially who, who really make things work, you know? Really? And, she, uh, yeah, exactly. She's, and she's a good hang too, you know? She, she's she's, <laughs> she's got, a lot of fun. She's got yeah. a great sense of humor. She's a lot of yep. fun. And I think everybody's going to really enjoy this one. I think she's a good example. She's a child of the Vatican, too, in the sense that she's been looking for ways to help our healed church in renewal. I think she's brought a lot of creativity with her programs and is the energy behind what we really need now to, to rethink how we engage the, the church in the world today that's so broken and, and fractured. So she brings a lot of that energy you know, to us. And she's the kind of person that, you know, just her, her witness of her presence, of her personality, of her attitudes, of her mentality, all that stuff. You know, it's really very attractive for the faith. You know, you, you know, it's just the kind of person that I've met in my life that you say, what does she know that I don't know? Absolutely right, Dennis. If she's a Catholic, then I want to be a Catholic. Right. That's witness. witness. The whole witness. Yep. Yeah. Great witness to the truth of and the power of the resurrection. Well, let's go right to the interview. Yeah, let's. Okay. So, without further delay, joining us today is Dr. Claire Henney. Claire is the product of 20 years of Catholic education. She received her bachelor's degree in music from Immaculate Heart College in Los Angeles, a master's degree in pastoral theology from Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles, and a doctor of ministry degree from Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. Claire was commissioned in 2009 as a pastoral associate in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles and has worked in ministry for 20 years at St. Paul the Apostle Parish in Los Angeles. In 2012, she left ministry to co-found Parish Catalyst, a parachurch nonprofit dedicated to encouraging parish leadership teams across the country to think creatively, act courageously, and renew the church. Claire has facilitated a weekly women's faith-sharing group, led retreats, and posts a blog at catholic-conversations.com that explores the contours of the Catholic experience. In the past year, she has been on the parish committee, deeply involved in answering Pope Francis's call to synod. Claire and her husband have raised four children and live in Los Angeles area. Claire claims that one of her children has actually stuck with our faith, which is an interesting one out of four, 25% average, you're doing, you're doing well, very well. So thank you very much, Claire, and welcome to the Deacon's Pod. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Could you uh, could you start by telling us about your faith journey with, and how you got hooked up with the Paulists? I've certainly been a Catholic all my life. I never really needed to leave the church because I lived in a time where the church kind of rocked me along the way. You know, if you think about your life, your journey, it, it gets... Uh, and you really go back and look at, at moments of change, I realized how I've kind of ridden the church through my life. When I was in college, I was at Immaculate Heart College in Los Angeles during a very volatile time in the church. When I was there as a freshman, the sisters were in habits, and this was right after Vatican II, and then they really became engaged in wanting to be into the church. So the next year they were out of their habits and they were learning how to live in the world. Then they had a huge conflict with the, the current uh, 
establishment of the church at that point ended up by the time I left as a senior, they had left the church as an actual order and had become a lay group. So that's that was my experience of Catholic college. So that tells you why I'm kind of on the edge of things sometimes. The other things happened where we just found ourselves married and with children and looking for the right school and found myself driving past two Catholic churches to get to St. Paul the Apostle in Westwood, where we became members of a Paulist community, fell right into it. And before long, I was finding myself looking for something to do. I ended up being in the parish office, just kind of going in as doing office work. But the Paulists really encouraged me to do more. And I became much more of a kind of facilitator. People would be coming to me almost in a pastoral way. So I found myself going off and getting a pastoral, master of, of pastoral masters at Loyola Marymount. And then it just grew into going to the doc, doctor. It just kind of just grew. And all along the way, I think working with five separate Paulist pastors really formed me. And let me just give you one incident that was great. I I managed to be in the New York, I mean, in the Los Angeles Times and just quoted there. And I got this um, unsigned letter from someone who had read it, who thought I was just awful. I was a feminazi. I believe this, I believe that, unsigned, unsigned. And I took it to my pastor and he said, congratulations, Claire, you're now officially a minister in this church. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that the way, right? Yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of, you know, you just grow into it. Like I said, I've, you know, I've given, I've preached and I've also put out cones in rainy parking lots. uh, I bet you that wasn't the only letter like that you received over the course of 20 years. No, no, there were (laughs) several others. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's so interesting when you get one of those letters and it's unsigned. I mean, if you yeah. really are, feel so strongly to actually mail it to me, tell me who you are so I can okay. respond to you. Yeah. But anyway, so I'm sorry, Tom. <laughs> no, I just wanted. So what uh, the, the end result is? You did. This was not your life plan. It it unfolded in front of you, one step in front of the other. As I, as I found journey. that yeah. my whole life yeah. is that yeah. you know I just. I don't really plan that it comes. I kind of now have learned to just kind of wait for it to come to me. <laughs> well, um, you went all the way across the country. But, or did you take your Catholic university online? No, well, I did. I went for five summers. I think I went for three weeks of sessions and then did the rest online. Wow. And then as soon as that was finished, I get this opportunity to leave church ministry and, and begin a parachurch nonprofit with a Catholic person who has, you know, been, was able to kind of finance it. And we just developed Parish Catalyst and met with parishes all over the country for five or six years before I had to leave. And what was amazing about it is you see the life in the church that's really there. You know, last, mm-hmm. I think it was the 19th or the 18th, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal that the Catholic Church is really becoming ideologically split. But that what it, they were saying was that it's becoming the priestly administrative aspects of the church are becoming more conservative, while the laity is becoming a little more unconservative. And so that it was interesting to see that that was kind of the split they were seeing. Well, do you think the recent events at USCCB kind of yes, bring that, bring that, that to that the to the front? With the, yeah. Mm-hmm. And this survey that we did last spring that in conjunction with the Senate really brought that to the forefront for me, that the the people are definitely thinking they're really trying to find their own understanding of things because there's so much that has occurred with changes in the church between the sexual abuse crisis and, and our complete enculturation of a church into society. When you you realize that I think seven of the nine Supreme Court justices are Catholic or of some sort of Catholic affiliation. That's kind of an interesting realization for someone who remembers when you just weren't Catholic in society or Protestant, you know. It was the exception to have a a leadership or political and and jududicial leadership to be Catholic rather than than the norm. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. 
And now it's the norm. Yeah. So we as Catholics are trying to figure out the ground is kind of shaking under us. Who who are we now? Who are we? You know, you go back to 1910 when they were all basically yeah. immigrant, lower education, factory workers. They were all pretty much, you know, New Deal Democrats. And then the nuns got done with us all. And as much as people talk about the nuns, I would just point out that those women took a, within 100 years, moved Catholics from the lowest educated to the <laughs> highest educated group, or one of the highest educated groups in the United States in 100 years, with nothing, by the way. They, they did yeah, no scraps support of paper it, yeah. in their own blood, sweat, and tears. So now that we have been successful, well, we're not all New Deal Democrats. You know, you've got... Uh, You've got your Republican managerial class now, and even doesn't matter how many vowels they got in their name. Oh, look, you know, they're they're conservatives, and it's like, what a surprise, you know. It's it's a mark of success in America, actually, more more than I would say. I mean, you can look at it as being divided, but it's also who was it that said the Catholic Church means here comes everybody? Was it James no. Joyce or something? James Joyce, yeah. And here we are in America proving it. So I mean, it's that said, I think we are kind of in the middle of an identity crisis. Who are we as Catholic? What does it mean to be Catholic? You know, I think that, and this, the Synod is bringing that out a little bit too. So many of our traditional people don't even want to think about having people talk for themselves or be part of the conversation. And what we found was people were really hungry to be part of the conversation. For just as an example, we had a survey where it was supposed to take eight minutes to complete. And we had close to 500 people take 35 minutes to complete it. They wanted to talk about something. They wanted to, you know, say what they had to say. And, and of course, that goes back to what I was just saying. You know, if you didn't want that result, you shouldn't have educated us. Yes. You know, it's one thing when, again, when everybody, you know, the priest is the smartest, most educated person in, in, <laughs> in your neighborhood. And everybody else is maybe an eighth grade education or whatever. And the catechism and, you know, little religious education, whatever, would suffice. Well, you went to a Catholic college. Tom did. I did. I mean, I think there's like 500 of them or something in this country alone, mm -hmm. something like that. You know, you educate all these people. Well, now you got to talk to adults. You know, it's like, well, I have adult questions. I'm not, you know, what I learned, you know, okay. the world keeps changing so much faster and faster. We have studies of that every you know, knowledge doubles every six months or some ridiculous thing now. And the old days where it's like, I haven't read a book since I graduated from high school and I, I got through a career. That's no Those one, days are no, gone. Oh, yeah. That's ancient so, history now. So again, you have all this change. Well, now the church, has, it's about time we started talking to the adults. I mean, the old program for immigrants and the uneducated work fine, but it's not going to work fine now that you've made the mistake of educating all these people. So thank God there's people like you, Claire, that are, you know, working with the adult faith, adult questions, not the mm -hmm. second grade questions. So again, we're victims of our success. The fact that people are speaking up is we're really getting to the whole Vatican II concept that the people are the church. For the first time, we're beginning to kind of claim our relationship to the church, that it isn't just followers and sheep. Yeah, the, a, a big issue of the, uh, the people of God. You're involved in faith formation, so I'm wondering how you address that issue of Catholic identity in that situation. What do you, how are you, are you approaching that? Are you trying to? You know, I think that being a Catholic is right now kind of an individualistic kind of experience, and maybe it always has been. I think back about the little we know about the disciples, the 12 disciples, and how different they were from one another, and how, how they understood Jesus in different ways than we do. I don't think we're all supposed to be cookie cutters. I think we are supposed to, you know, kind of work through this because if we don't see it as a journey, you know, it's not just sort of you become this. It's just you be, you, you set yourself on a path. Right. And so wherever you are on the path is where you are as a Catholic. The person I am today is not the person I was yesterday and nor is the Catholic I was today. The Catholic that went into Mass last Sunday. We're all old enough to remember in our childhood, it was not unity and diversity, which is what you're talking about, which is what it has yeah. to be. Every person is different. It, we're not cookie cutters or widgets or robots, so never have been. So that's just a fact. You can argue with gravity if you want. But when we were kids, it wasn't unity. It was uniformity. 
it was very much, you know, there is one way and there is, this is how we do it. And, you know, and here are the lines and it was very regimented in all areas. The nuns were much more regimented Ooh. than they are now. The priests certainly were. And I don't know, the lay people, I guess they were too, as far as I can remember as a kid. And now, of course, we're having to deal with that unity is not uniformity. And that is where the big problems are. It's like, this is a messy business. You're dealing with humans. You know, it's always messy. Ask anybody who has a job working with people. So you still have a culture of people saying, no, we've got rules and procedures and we're going to do this this way. And it's like, well, good luck with that. You know, I mean, you know, I don't know. I mean, it sounds good, but I don't know how you pull it off is what I'm saying, you know? So I think that well, that's part of what we're wrestling with is the unity is not uniformity. See, at the point that if you look at Jesus as a business model, he did take diverse personalities, right? Mm -hmm. That's a, And that's, yeah. a, that's a formula for success. In the business world, you want people who can give you ideas unless you're trying to run the table, right? And I think that's one of the big problems we have today is everybody's a, a yes man. And you can't bring in the fringe mindset if everybody's sitting around with the same ideology and the same mindset for some of the solutions. We've seen that in a terrible way and just in the things that have played out with doctors saying that you can't get pregnant because you're raped. I mean, this is nuts. How, can you say that? And you really believe that that's the case in the year, here we are, the third millennia? That, but, but obviously he's sitting around with a bunch of people who believe... Uh, professional medical people who believe that. So plus other things that have gone on, but you need people around you to argue the point out to, to move forward. And well, the apostles were pretty good at that. And we've, we've lost that model of things. I think we closed Louvain for, for the other mindset of how to train our priests, right? They closed that five, six, 10 years ago now. So just mm -hmm. one, one way to form a cookie cutter mentality. So it hasn't worked too well. I wonder if that's why we have more conservative priesthood today, because it would be a lot easier to lead people if they're going to follow the rules than it is to lead people in like herding cats. Yeah, that's what I find sometimes in my experience. The people who want to follow the rules are the people often who are the most conservative and find the comfort in the rules and are very uncomfortable if you try to deviate from the rules. So, but that gives them security. That's a security function. I right. need to and know a lot what of I'm people doing. have grown up with chaos. See, again, yeah. one of the Richard Rohr said this once, and I said, Well, that makes so much sense. He was saying that he says, Oh, you want to see conservative? Look over here, look at me. And he starts rattling off all the these awful liberals that conservatives don't like who are priests that are well known, you know. And he says, We grew up, we we did Latin. We did, you know, when I was in the seminary, you know, he was through the whole thing. I had that program. And he said, and it produced this, and it produced it in these other people. And he was saying the problem he sees with young people is a lot of them are growing up with chaos, with multiple divorces and this and that. And the idea of something they can cling to is what draws them in. And then they don't want to change anything. It's like, I, you know, I want, I want this. I want the security. So I think psychologically, Tom's right. He really is. I have to give a shout out, though, to some rules and regs, because I do believe, and this is another Richard Rohr thing, is that he said that we, you, know, you really need to start with a base. You need a container Correct. to grow in. It's almost like you Correct. need the Petri dish to start the growth. But then I think mature faith really necessitates an informed conscience. And, and you have to really get to the point where, yes, I understand the reason for these rules, but now I've kind of grown beyond them. And uh, I think the same could be like the military. They, you go in, they train you their way. Okay. And that's the way, but it's not going to be that way when you get out into the field. You okay. have to use what you know. I mean, it's just a good metaphor that you, we got to give you the basics, but I, you're on your own, Skippy, when you're out there and you better put this together. Otherwise, the consequences are pretty deep. And I think that applies in our faith too, that if you're formed, and I think Richard Roy was talking about that, you start as a conservative, as a base, and then your faith grows you to other aspects, and you have to be open to that. Again, the Holy Spirit, which and is guiding us. Roar also said in that same talk, I think we're all talking about, that I remember, he says, you have to know the rules and by keeping the rules so that you know how to break them properly. Mm -hmm. You know, and it was a great story Merton used to tell of this whole thing where people lose it. And again, all of us certainly value the rules, the traditions, all that. They, they give life. But you have to know when this does not apply. So Merton told this story 
Because, you know, in the old days in the Trappist, Thomas Merton was a Trappist monk in Kentucky. And uh, this is back before Vatican II, still Latin and everything. And they never talked, you know, the Trappist. They, they kind of invented sign language, you know, to communicate because they weren't supposed to talk to each other most of the day. And you didn't run. You didn't slam doors. I mean, there was a decorum. You walked looking down. So the whole thing. So that's how they trained you. So he says one day they're sitting in the choir there and the abbot's up there and they're chanting the Psalms and it's very quiet. And this brother comes in very quietly, stops, turns, shuts the door behind him, slowly with his eyes down, walks up and walks over to the abbot's chair from the side aisle. And the abbot sees him and leans towards him, and he he leans in, and he greets him with the traditional Latin monastic greeting, and he says, the house is on fire. And that was the story he told, where, like, you know, when the house is, he told his novices, when the house is on fire, forget the rules. You run in, you throw that door open, and yell, fire, get out. You don't come in and walk through the, you know, go through all the customs in that case. And that's a sign of maturity when you can distinguish those, where you're not just using it as license, like, well, I'm not going to keep the rules. Then you don't have the strength of the rules. But you have to know when the house is on fire, the decorum has to take second place. We, you get everybody out. So we appreciate both sides, but it's, yeah, it's yeah. a problem when you get stuck in it that you can't deal with it. And like, you know, they were saying that people are attracted to this, the stability and the rigidity, just like they are in the military. There's people that love the military and they don't do well in civilian life. They need, they need highly structured lives. So it's a balancing act the Holy Spirit has to walk us through. Wait, what's interesting about faith sharing that I've, that I've learned through the years is how different everyone's trip up the mountain. It was, well, we say in our group, everyone's got a different route up the mountain. And many people who've been in it for many years who have a theology very different from mine, their theology is still as different as it ever has been, but we've learned how to communicate with one another and understand one another. I think not all of us Catholics who live at the same time are contemporaries. Unpack that again. Yeah. <laughs> no, that was, I think that was deep there. Wait a minute. Tom and I need to catch up. So go ahead. Try that again. <laughs> that not all Catholics who live at the same time are contemporaries. I don't necessarily mean that we're living in different eras simultaneously, but in a way I am. We have to be open to the fact that, like I said, there's different roads up the mountain. And some people are going to hold on to a very mystical experience. Some people are going to hold on to a very intellectual experience. Some people, whatever, wherever we're going to find God, we're going to find God. We know that whatever, wherever we're looking, as St. Augustine would tell us, Whatever we think we've got, God, we know we don't. You know, we're never going to find it. So why do we think, because the four of us kind of are on the same theological page, that we've got the right answer? I mean, we're all working at it, as, as are the people who are living in a more conservative approach or a more mystical approach. You know, I have, there's, there's people in my group that see things that I don't see, you know, have those sort of mystical experiences. There's people that are much more bound toward to, to the rules and rigs that they find that a security. And so I think that we just have to be, like I said, we're not all contemporaries in this and at this living at the same time. That, that's kind of how I give myself a... No, that's a, interesting. But I think that the key thing in that to me is that as you say it, I'm thinking, and you will allow them that privilege of following their own path. You will not say, no, 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 no. Stop no. that foolishness and come over here and do what I'm doing. See, I think that's always my objection is <laughs> let me impose my way on you. And, you know, whatever it is, you know, like, oh, you, you have to talk in tongues or you just don't have the no. Holy Spirit. Well, that's just not true. Right. Well, you, if yeah. you don't pray the rosary like me. Right. No, that's not true either. I mean, you got to pray, but there's a million ways to pray. And there's no commandment saying you have to pray a particular way. And with a billion people plus, we should, you think we'd be on to that. So I think that's the problem with a lot of the more conservative element is they want to say, no, no, you can't do that, even though it's legit. I've seen things where people are talking about stuff, well, you can't do that. And it's like, I know that's legit. 
I remember when I had Dick McBrien as a professor of ecclesiology at Boston College, great man, former Dawson priest, president of the Catholic Theological Society, and then he went on to Notre Dame to run their theology department. He wrote a book called Catholicism. And for some reason, this was just, could not be allowed to stand in the American church. And he was attacked constantly for what was in that book. And when the USCCB, as a body, vetted that book, and they only made him change one little footnote, because when they finally pushed it, it's like, this is all entirely orthodox. It is not your cup of tea, Bishop, but this guy, and I said to him once, I said, why are you so disliked? I said, I think you're pretty traditional. He says, I do. I believe in infallibility. I believe in all seven of the sacraments. I believe in the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. I said, so what did you do? He said, as far as I can tell, because he used to have like columns that would run in diocesan papers around the country where he'd do a little theology after Vatican II, and it went on and then gradually petered out when they started cutting them. He said, I think what I really did was I had a column where I said that bishops used to be elected. Mm-hmm. Well, that's just a fact of history. People used to elect their bishops for a long time. And he said, that was it. They cut, <laughs> they dropped my columns. They cut, like, it's like, well, this is not even dogma theology. This is just like, you know, 1776. Yeah, that was the date. You know, what, what about it? You know? So I think it's great that you're, what you said there about you have to let people find their own way. Now, again, there are guardrails like, no, 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 no. Now you, you've left the building now here. And yeah. I have to tell you that. But within those broad lines, there's a lot of room for liberal to conservative and everything in between, and you're still all orthodox. Yeah. One thing I think that helps us as a group kind of live in each other's theology is that we have a few rules about our relationship and, and who, what we talk about. And one of them is that we don't share on each other's sharings. We don't try to fix each other. So if someone has says something that is, you know, not my personal theological cup of tea, I'm not going to come back at them and say anything. I'm, we're just going to hold what they have as a gift from them. And then someone else is going to respond in their way to what's going on. So it's, it's a technique that has working well for us, that, that it, is, it is not a conversation where we're going back and forth. We're sharing our hearts and we're sharing our faith with one another and we're holding what the other person has for what it is. Do you find that makes people more open to, the, to a different opinion than theirs, a different approach? I think people still stay who they are. What it has taught me, I spent years being frustrated with it, going, when is she ever going to learn? When is she ever going to catch on? Until I finally opened my heart enough to realize there's a lot of roads up the mountain. You know, this is her relationship with God ain't that grand. And then once I got past my own prejudices about it, and which is I'm trying to do now with with everything we're doing, I'm trying to not look back and go, well, I wish it was remember when, or wouldn't it be nice if. I'm just trying to live in the moment. And like with my with my blog, I just I'm just trying to open my heart to where I'm at right now. You know, not not trying to change people. I think we're trying, we're all trying to change each other. And I don't think that's, that would, which means we're not really listening to the spirit. Yeah. And it's kind of like marriage, isn't it? You know, it's like, you know, you look at your girlfriend and say, God, I'd never marry that guy she's married to. Oh my God. He's just not my cup of tea. And she's thinking the same thing about your husband, but they're two very okay. good marriages. And you're both happy in them, and there's nothing wrong with them. But you get to say, oh, "This I wouldn't. This is not the kind of guy I'd go for." It's kind of the same thing with, you know, your spiritual approach or whatever. You have to let people be themselves if you want to communicate with them. You have to respect them and say, "Well, it's not crazy." You're not talking about an abusive marriage where it's like you you got to intervene and say, "Listen, you can't. You know, this is not healthy for you." That's where the guidelines would be, like theologically. But other than that, it's like, well. You know, or this person joined this religious order and not that religious order, and they're entirely different. And you'd say, I would never join that group. But doesn't mean everybody. Back to the not all Catholics who live at the same time are contemporaries. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
Exactly. <laughs> you, you raised one thing, though, in, the, in your faith-sharing experiences. Now, from a practical point of view, I'd like to see if, if maybe you can give me some help, because I also... <laughs> Since actually, since the pandemic, we've had that where you know where we have faith sharing, and then there's always though you was a member of our group who, after somebody unloaded their lives into the rest of our laps, just for us to have and and to hold, somebody would then this one somebody would, well, let me tell you how you can fix that. Yeah. I stopped that right away. I do. Well, that that's what I'm asking for. Am I Have I been too harsh when I've said, yeah. I've just held up my hand, actually, like well, as a stop sign and said, let's not do that right now. Let's just, let's go, you know, let's just sit with what we've, we've heard or something like that. You know, I'm not, I, I can't remember. As I say this, remember these, this is one of our key rules that right. we don't. And then the next time we meet, I go over the rules again, just yep. to iterate it because it's a lot of people feel like they're helping. And some I've had people in, in small groups that were so unhappy with that that they left because they really wanted to fix that's what that's what they came for. Right. And that just it it just doesn't work. That's just not what it's there for. Sharing faith is very it's intimate and it's it can be scary because sometimes when you're speaking, you're thinking and saying thoughts that are coming to you that you haven't thought through before, especially for introverts, mm-hmm. you know, who you know want to kind of say something. I, I often always, every session, I always say too, anybody here who hasn't had a chance to speak, you know, would you like to have this moment? Because many people kind of get overrun by the, the people that are more outgoing and they want to keep talking. So I'm, I try to regulate that as well. You mentioned your blog a few minutes ago. May I turn to the blog for a moment? I don't know if if, if we've Please. had any structure to this conversation. I'm not sure where it's gone, but but I'd like to turn. We're having fun. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, it's great. I'm loving it. I really am. So we, I think we mentioned that we're recording this in the time of Advent, maybe about a week before Christmas. But I think what I'm about to ask you about and talk to you about, while written in the Advent time by you, can be something that we can pray on year round, and I just think it's. It's a great idea. So let me bring it up. It's it's entitled, A Theology of Jesus in the Womb. And if I may just read a couple of sentences from the blog and then, and then ask you a couple of questions. First of all, the first sentence is, and I haven't heard this phrase. I, I think I've heard this in the past, and I love it. Advent is a time of pregnant pause. There's just so much hidden meaning and, and outward meaning in that, in that line, and I love it. A time when we imagine Mary jostling her way to Bethlehem on the back of a donkey. Any woman who was ever driven by car to the hospital while in labor understands the true significance of the word jostling. Although the Christmas story of the journey to Bethlehem will always warm my heart, as a woman of faith who has also given birth, I find Mary's interior journey far more intriguing. If you were like me, I've always thought of Jesus as coming into the world on Christmas Day. But in reality, he came into the world nine months earlier. We think of him as being on earth for 33 years, but in actuality, it would have been 34. Now, this is the part that I find stunning. New science around the interrelationship between a pregnant mother and her child is providing interesting data that gives me pause to wonder why we don't have a defined theology of Jesus of the womb. We have known for quite some time that a woman's blood nurtures an unborn baby. Oxygen and nutrients from the mother's blood are transferred from the placenta to the fetus through the umbilical cord. But it's only recently that studies have shown that cells from the baby also cross the placenta and enter the mother's body through her bloodstream, where they become part of her tissues. These cells have been found to stay with the mother for decades. The idea that the cells of Jesus crossed over into Mary's bloodstream and became part of her body makes the story of Emmanuel, God with us, far more physical and intimate than we had previously imagined. It just blows me away, Claire. This brings new meaning to the whole story to me. I mean, this this says so much about Mary and so mm-hmm. much about all of us. I mean, you know, I can't give birth, but I gave my mother my cells. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the... This is just, there's just so much in this that I find so stunningly important and ponderous. I'm going to say ponderous because you use that word in the next sentence. I'd like to gather a group of theologians together 
a number of them would need to be female, to ponder at how a focus on Jesus in utero is a link in salvation that we have overlooked. And then you have a series of questions. Just what, what a great blog. I mean, one thing that has occurred to me since I wrote that was, because the questions I have for the, the group of theologians that I'm gathering together in my mind are the ones that you were talking about. I would add a question now, and that would be, how does this understanding of Jesus's cells moving into the human cells of his mother, how does that inform the Eucharist? How does that inform our understanding of consuming Jesus as the Eucharist and becoming part of ourselves? So that wow. was the thought that came to me mm. since I wrote it. This is just, it, it's a fascinating and, and wonderful essay. It's, it's, I think it also it just points out how beautiful science and, and faith and religion can come together. I mean, you know, maybe we never could have thought of this until now. And so right. maybe it's time for an understanding of theology of the woman. It's, it's interesting, when I started to write it, the first thing I thought of is, okay, how am I going to walk around the whole abortion issue? How, you know, and I, and I thought, because the abortion issue has taken over the planet as far as taken over our theological conversations within the church. There's no way to even walk around it. And I thought, oh, geez, I'm going to be talking about, you know, the womb. How's this going to work? And then, like I was trying to say before, I let go of all of that. I let go of the, the trauma and the what, what used to be and what are we doing now and how do we, you know, and I just let go and just let it happen without worrying about the idea of, of abortion. I think, I think we're all a little bit stuck in the mire of where we are. And I don't, I think the spirit is trying to pull us out. And I think we need to be innovators and innovators are going to be people who are going to just see the future and just move forward and you know, let the chips fall where they may. Number five on the points you raise in the blog is, I think, related to that, taking us back to our journey in the womb, a theology of Jesus in the womb would remind us that God is working in us while we are waiting. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Why don't we tell our listeners where we can find your blog to have, because and, and there's a lot of, lot of good information and wealth and spirituality there. Can you tell us? Thank you. It's at catholic-conversations.com. Okay. Claire, you were involved in the Synod at St. Paul the Apostle, correct? Correct, in Westwood in Los Angeles. Well, can you tell us, first of all, what the entire Synod was about for worldwide, to, if mm -hmm. you could put that into context, and then tell us what you did at St. Paul the Apostle? Yeah, well, we know that, that Pope Francis invited the whole world to have a discussion about the church. And this is the first time, I think, ever that everyone in the world has been invited into this kind of conversation. Not everyone in our country brought into it. I think a lot of the pastors in our country are overworked and found it just one more thing that they had to do. Fortunately, I was at a parish where we were definitely going to be doing this. And also, the Archdiocese of Los Angeles offered some great ways to, you know, some helpful hints at how to go about it. But we saw that we wanted to know more than what we were being asked to do. So we ended up doing four in-service gatherings of people to talk about the areas of the synod questions that were provided to us by the Archdiocese. We did our due diligence, wrote it up, and sent it in. But we also put together a survey that ended up going to almost 600 people. About half of them, 298 were our current parishioners, and 294 were people we sent it to outside the parish. We told all of our parishioners, send it to anybody that you know. Please send it to people who have left the church as well. And we ended up having 61 people who are no longer affiliated with the Catholic Church responding. And as I said before, we were very taken by how much we received. We ended up with 
over 100 pages of comments from all walks of life over all kinds of areas of the church. And so now we're trying to parse through that and figure out how best to move forward with it. What we did this for Advent and we will be doing for Lent is we put together a face-sharing guide for people to use during the Advent session that, that touched on parts of this program. And then we'll do the same thing in Lent. So I have a personal concern that this this synod really does move forward, that we don't just leave it at where we are. I really do. When I was talking about innovation before, I don't know if you know the diffusion of innovation theory. It's done by E.M. Rogers. It was back in 1962, but it's it's one of the oldest social science theories. And it says, if you start with innovators who are just really ready to go for things, you get about 3% of the population. And then you get early adopters. They see, oh, St. Paul's is doing that down the street. We're going to give it a try. And then you get about 13% more of your population moves that direction. And that's when you get to a tipping point. And at that point, you get the early adopters. They're about 34% than the late majority. And so that's kind of how innovation moves through society. And I would like to see that move through the church that way. And so the, I see this, this survey that we've been doing as a way to begin that, to just to be an innovator and just spread out the news of what we heard. And what we heard was a lot. <laughs> But what I'd like to say, I think what what I'm I'm gleaning, this is just me, this isn't something that the committee's come up with, is that what I'm hearing from the reports back from the small groups and from all of the material that we got initially is that we never discount mystery. Mystery is huge, and it's it's really part of who we are as a faith community. And that also that I'm really a mature faith, and I think I said this before, necessitates an informed conscience. It can't just be about following the rules, that it has to be something that grows in you as a faith. And that all Catholics are not the same you know, at any given time. We just have to be aware of that. We also have to realize that secrets in the, in the Catholic Church are our Achilles heel. They really mess us up. But the forward-thinking thing and most positive thing that came out of this was that 70% of the people who took our survey believe that the church can change. And I think that that's, that's where the innovation's going to come from. That's where the Spirit's going to lead us. Can you explain the mystery thing, the first thing you said, just to make sure everybody understands what you were referring to? I think that it's easy in this world to be very logical and Everything has to be, if it's provable, then it's correct. If it's not provable, it is. it can't possibly be true. That's why I think three of my children aren't Catholic, is they, they're too much into that kind of a culture. But the older I get and the more I experience faith and the spirit, I realize that mystery is part of, of who, who we are as a spiritual, spiritual beings walking through this world. And if you don't accept that, then you're, you know, it's very hard for you to kind of latch on to that kind of spirit talk. One example of that, what's particularly within the Catholic Church, is how most, it was, it was in the 70s, seven, I can't remember, I think it was 70% of the people who took this, who identified as Catholic, said that they believe that the Eucharist is Jesus in some sort of extra form. We didn't use any theological terms, but they believed that Jesus, the true presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. You have to have some mystery and mystic and mysticism to be able to to grasp that. You know, that's one of the things we need to do is is in, is bring in like you did in your blog more science because part of the reason that people are saying I don't buy this is they don't hear any of this. They hear Bronze Age stories, and they go, you expect me to believe that? And there's no further explanation like, well, you know, how do you understand this material? What's, you know, the wisdom and the mystery that's being evoked here? Mm -hmm. And so they just go to the dominant culture, which is scientific materialism. Just reduce it all down. It, if it ain't under the microscope, it ain't real. But if you live long enough and your brain's not shut down, you know that 
everything isn't in a Petri dish, and we can't weigh everything, we can't measure everything, and, and some of those things are the most important things that keep us going, and there's something going on here that's not reducible to our crude understanding and, and tools. Beyond mystery, I think we are missing the boat in the way we as people today understand myth. Yes. I think mm. myth is critical to understanding so much of what we're hearing in the Gospels, in, in all of the stories, in our traditions. And today, myth is something that just doesn't. Mm-hmm. It, it means it's not real. Yeah, right. But when you go back to really the understanding of myth right. in the past, you know, it's a way of kind of gathering and understanding something that is, is beyond the, Correct. the black and white. And I think that if we could get back to understanding myth better, we would be in a much better position. And we live in a society that has decided, you know, in general, that everything has got to be reduced to science or mathematics. Yeah. Or entertainment. We're good with that. And therapy. Okay. So those are the four poles. Okay. Entertainment, therapy, we get those. But everything else has got to be science and math, to which my question is, is that that's the only kind of truth you believe in is science and mathematical truth? You know, yes. Well, then why do they have all those other classes at that university? There's poetic truth. There's, I mean, music. There's, you know, the whole human experience. It's just, and that's where we're stuck. And, and we just have this dogma that like, well, no, it's science and math. And I got nothing against science and math. I love it. I'm using it right now, you know, to talk to everybody. But, you know, I mean, there's more than this. That's all I'm saying. And we need to communicate that better. The, the Greeks had logos and they had myth and they were of equal weight. And I think if we could kind of go back to that kind of understanding, it would broaden our human experience. Can, can you unpack the secret thing you, in your list? Well, when I talk about secrets, I, I was basically talking about this, the sex scandal, you know, and holding hold mm-hmm. or trying to keep things secret, trying to keep a face you know, in front right. of everyone that is that is kind of corrupt underneath. You have to pop the blister and yeah. ooze and let it heal or, you know, you're not going to get anywhere. But don't you think that's tied into, again, my paradigm is for what's been going on for the, for since Vatican II is we are very comfortable with a church with children as members of one kind or another, and you have the parental figures, and we will tell you what you need to know and how much, and we will protect you, to your point now, from the things we don't think you can handle. And it's very much like your friends who have not made the transition to being the parents of adult children, and they wonder (laughs) why their relationship with their kids is screwed up, because they're not six. You cannot talk to your 45-year-old son like he's six years old and expect he's going to be there for Sunday dinner. And that's what the church continues to do instead of I think those things are related, that if, if you, you know, there won't be secrets once you say, this is the people of God and they are adults. Secrets. The only way we're going to do that is just accepting that as we are. We are the people of God and we're no longer going to keep secrets. And when we're going to let the magisterium catch up with us. One of the questions we often ask our guests is, what do we say to somebody who's on the way out or on the way in? Now, you actually addressed that question to people who were already out. So do you have answers for us as to how to get them back in? You know, it's funny how our attitude toward people who have disaffiliated or who are about to affiliate is, how do we, how do we stop? How do we get them back? And um, I think so the wrong way to approach it. Okay. I think that what we've got to quit saying we lose if we don't get them back. What we have to start doing is at, instead of asking, how do we get them back? We need to be asking ourselves, why did they leave? And then do something about what was it that made them leave? And I think the one thing that I noticed with the people who have disaffiliated, now this was only 61 people. So it's, you know, it's not like, you can say this is generally for everybody, but they're all still spiritually alive. They're spiritually seeking, but none of them, or I shouldn't say none, most of them are not seeking in any sort of communal way. 
it's all individualized. Like I'm, I'm doing yoga. I have my own prayer style. I, whatever it is, I'm being, I'm good to other people. I try to be honest. I, it's all kind of self-improvement, kind of self-realization. And it's not so much about interpersonal or communal practices. And I, I find that sad. If I were to continue to just rely on my own spiritual guidance, I don't know where I'd be. I, I do need to be brought back to center by a community and by people who are going to, you know, e- even if I don't like what they say, even though I don't like a rule in the church, what the, there's parts of the Catholic Church that make me crazy, but the parts of the Catholic Church that have fed me have taught me to understand the in, the experience of God, and I don't. I would not be there without those experiences. So I worry about people who are not finding that. I understand why they leave. And I think the only thing to do is to start having conversations about why and not so much what, you know, where did you go wrong? Where did we go wrong? Right. Right. Thank you so much for that, for that answer. Yeah. I think that's very, very insightful of the path ahead. I I really do think that's good. Well, here's a classic case where we have to let the good spirit lead us because I don't think anybody knows where we're going, but we're on our way, you know, on the road that if we knew where we were going, I mean, Jesus has already told us, we, you're not going to know. Okay. That's right. That's right. You got to be comfortable with that uncertainty, but still put your shoulder to the wheel, I think. Yep. For those reasons you just mentioned, Claire, because we found the energy and the, the spirituality of community in our way and everybody's different and they're finding that and Hopefully the mm-hmm. process will bring us to a, a place where we'll build more consensus and unity and be faithful to the call we've received from the good Lord. We also under, have to understand what unity is going to look like. It's not going to look like it used to look. No, it's not going to be uniformity. Yeah. Unity means we're kissing cousins, I think, you yeah. know. Yeah. Well, even the whole community thing, this is very much a, the dominant culture in America was Protestantism. And if you go back to Hecker's time in the 1800s, you had Emerson and all mm-hmm. these people. I sing a song of myself and I'm going to go do this by myself. And, you know, there's no, absolutely no need or understanding why you would need a community. It's the individual believer in God, you know, me and the Bible. There were various permutations of it. But the Catholic thing is very much, and the Orthodox, and I would say the Jewish, perhaps, I think the Muslims too, to a certain extent, but this idea of there is an element of community that is necessary for you to to be able to do what you think you're trying to do. And I think that that we haven't made the case for that. I think that's the key. It's interesting that coming out of COVID, we have this kind of dialogue between I really like being home. I want to work on my own. I want to be alone. I, want, I don't want to go into work. And then I'm yearning for community. Uh, why can't we be together again? I think the whole country is trying to figure out what community is right now. So it's an, an opportune time for the church to take a look at it as well. Right. But what I hear people saying is, I want the good things of community. I don't want the difficult part. And that's not community. That doesn't exist. I want to thank you for your service, Claire, because as Tom said, you are the fruit of Vatican II, you know, mm. of, a, of, a, of a woman who has prepared herself for ministry and done so much and been so creative and just, just wonderful. Just yeah, really, you are, you, you, are, you are what gives me hope in so many yeah. levels. So thank you. Thank Perseverance. You. Thank you indeed. Thank you. God bless. Thank you. Take care, guys. Thank you. Special thanks to El Jefe Paul Snatchko and our editor, David Dalt. The Deacon's Pod is powered by the Paulist Fathers. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts and, of course, at our own website, www.deaconspod.com. That's D-E-A-C-O-N-S with an S, Deacon's, plural, pod, all one word, dot com. And, of course, we'd love to hear your comments at our email address, which is deaconspod, again, with an S, deacons, at 
paulist.org. That's P-A-U-L-I-S-T dot org. Love to hear from you. That's our offering. We thank you for being with us. On behalf of our colleagues at the Missionary Society of St. Paul the Apostle, we wish you a future brighter than any past. Till next time.